I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're stepping out of our study in Isaiah for a couple of Sundays, uh, and we'll return there, of course, in uh, two weeks. But today and Friday evening and next Sunday, we will find ourselves in the Gospel of John. One of the things that you probably know about me by now is that I love, well, reading. I love stories. I like learning. Somewhere along the way in literature classes, I found myself being exposed to short stories. Short stories, of course, are a certain genre of literature, and um, there's, there's a certain design to them. Uh, they, they develop characters. There's usually some kind of drama. Something happens, and then it ideally leaves you hanging. And right now, my goodness sakes, easily, um, my goodness, how long ago, 30, probably 40 years ago, there were some short stories that I could tell you right now because I had a great literature teacher. And so some of these, I'm just going to drop three names, not the names of the teachers, the names of the short stories. You can jot these down. Don't read them before bed. Some of them will scare you and don't read them to your children because some of them are violent. So The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, short story. You ever read it? Oh, buddy, it's not about scratch tickets. Let me just say, no, what is the lottery? What happens in the story? And I remember reading it and getting to the end and going, no, that's impossible. That's, that's terrible. The lottery, you should read it. 1948, short story. Now, another one that I can quickly draw to mind, Incident at Owl Creek Bridge, written in 1890. Uh, it follows on the heels of, of the Civil War. So it's cast in those kinds of historical things. I first heard Incident in Owl Creek Bridge on the radio as radio drama. Back in the day, one of the radio stations used to do that. Seven to eight at night, there was radio drama. And I heard Incident at Owl Creek Bridge, only later to read the story and say, wait a minute, that's the same thing. Which came first, the story on the radio or the story in writing? And again, Incident at Owl Creek Bridge makes you, well, you join the character and you're saying, He's getting away. He's getting away. Or is he? You should read it. And then finally, uh, Leo Tolstoy, uh, War and Peace. No, that's not the short story. That's the long one. But who would know that the same guy who gave you War and Peace, inflicted that on you, could also write a pretty good short story. And so uh, back in the 18, uh, oh goodness, 1880s, Leo Tolstoy wrote a, a, a short story that still speaks today to you. Uh, it's pretty good. It's called... How much land does a man need? How much land does a man need? And he's speaking to that thing in you, every one of us, that whatever you have or however much you have, you want just a little more of it. I mean, not a lot, just a little more. It, it's you with the bowl of ice cream. Okay, it's one more scoop. Uh, it's you looking at something else and saying, just, just, just a little more. Well, okay, what's the answer to how much land does a man need? Should I ruin it for you? Here's the answer. It's quick. About six feet. <laughs> you'll have to read the rest of the short story to enter the drama. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, you will, you'll get it as you read the book. I mentioned stories like this because stories are intended to draw you in. A good story develops character and plot and theme and rise and fall of drama. And sometimes a sense of, oh no, how can that happen? Such is the Gospel of John. 
For these three sermons, today, Good Friday evening, and Easter morning, we're stepping into story. Big difference from Isaiah the prophet, okay? So it's it's a whole different type of of material and story. So we're going to be jumping in, and it it is. It's the middle of the Gospel of John where we're going to go. So I'm going to help us make that that, that jump today, kind of bridge the gap. Um, But story, story engages the heart. And you too, as we look at these, well, these events, we'll be finding ourselves saying, what is this about? Can that really be happening? So I would love it if, to the degree you can read them again for the first time, that you think about that. And I want to help you with that today. The glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. That is our theme for these three uh, services today, Good Friday and, and, and uh, Easter morning. The glory of Christ today in submission and obedience. And you see the next two on the back of your sermon notes that I hope you have in front of you. Well, I want to pray that God will help us in our time in his word today, looking at the glory of Christ in this amazing part of the gospel account. More about that in a minute, but let me pray for us as we get going here. Would you join me, please? Our Father, how good it is for us to come together today, this Palm Sunday as we call it, to turn our eyes to Jesus to see the glory of Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, and in his soon return. And our Father, I pray that you would impress the details of this story upon our hearts so we never get tired of it. The story of redemption would sing in our hearts and thus sing in our lives as well to all those who are around us. So use your word today in us. That is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm assuming that some of you know some of these details. I've written some things for you on your sermon notes to kind of help um, bring us up to speed. Palm Sunday, a little paragraph about story. And I want to come down then to the part called today's text, all right? A couple of reminders to us. The Gospel of John is one of the four stories of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often called the synoptic Gospels. They're more similar to one another. John's Gospel is different. He takes a different literary approach, okay? Specifically, among others, this is the Gospel where you read the seven I Ams of Jesus, I am the the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd, and so on. I'm the resurrection and the life, the light of the world. He gives seven of those. Further, John, rather than trying to catch everything, he's laser-focused on one thing. As he explains at the end of chapter 20, he says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So his target is clear. Uh, He's not just telling a story. He has a story with a purpose. He wants the reader the listener, to come to the point in hearing the story that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he is the one who is our Redeemer and Savior and King, and you need him as your, your own Savior, okay? He's aimed at that very clearly. Now, um, John, as a, as, the, as a book, 21 chapters long, theologians often divide it into two parts, and this is represented here for you uh, on your, the second bullet point here. John's gospel can be, be divided into two parts. The book of signs... Chapters 1 to 12, and the book of glory. Theologians often talk about it that way. 21, chapter 21, kind of an epilogue. But the book of signs, what that means is this. At the beginning, Jesus is described as doing the first sign, changing water to wine. And John tells you this is the first. This is the first of the signs. And there are several that he talks about culminating in chapter 11. 
chapter 11, just before our text today, is like the final sign. It's where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's like the exclamation mark, the punctuation. It's the drum beating. It's the lights all going on. He raised somebody from the dead. No, he really did. That's amazing. Did he really? People are asking, is that true? Who? Where's the guy? He looks okay to me. So the story of Lazarus, though, is is the final sign in this book of signs, and it will show up in our text today. It's referred to often. The book of glory, the book of glory, chapter 13, as the son of man, now the time has come, and he is going to walk the road to Calvary, where he will bear our sins in his own body on the cross, so that you and I can be reconciled with the holy God. So the book of glory, and I think hence my titles for this as well, the glory, the glory of Christ in all of these areas, of these roads that he walked down. Here's what I want to do today. I want to read the whole text, meaning not the whole book of John, John 12, 12 through 50, all at once. And then we'll come back and using the sermon notes, the, the direction that's given here, there are four elements that I want to touch on that kind of walk us through this big section. Now, service is going to close at a certain time because Oh my goodness, like about eight after, seven after, the children are supposed to look through that door at me and come in here and sing for you. That's going to be a sign. It's like John has signs. It's a sign for me. Wrap it up there, partner, because kids are coming. And uh, if I go too long, they're just going to open the door and the kids are coming. But I want to read then God's word, John 12, 12 through 50. Let's hear. Let's hear God's word. So we read, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Isn't that interesting? So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his, loves his life, rather loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Ah, But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it 
said that it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. God's word. Wow. All right. Now, I'm going to move, as you see, with the sermon notes in front of you through four elements here in the text. The presentation of the king, the mystery of the atonement, the indictment of unbelief, and the darkness closes in. So in this first section, verses 12 through 19, he begins, I want to say, underwhelmingly. Um, the next day is not a, doesn't have punch to it. John could have easily written this, well, with, you know, it, it, to use our language uh, parlance, three exclamation marks and caps. Uh, we would say, if it's a text, you're shouting at me. Well, he could easily have done so. The next day, oh my goodness sakes, are you kidding? This is the day. No, this is the day. This is the day long spoken of by the prophets. So it's not just another day. Well, the next day, oh, there's a lot of the next days. But moving on from chapter 11 and through the events described in the early part of 12, the next day, oh my goodness sakes, Isaiah, sorry, Psalm 118 Zechariah 9 and verse 9 both speak of this day. Uh, Psalm 118, 25 to 26 is described, is describing this event. Um, 
It's the familiar song. Some of you would know it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, save us, we pray. Lord, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, a section of it. Now, The triumphal entry I mentioned, one of the few events recorded in all four Gospels, signaling the beginning of the end, the beginning of that final week of Jesus. Now, Zechariah 9, 9 adds the color described in verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's coat. Jesus Jesus knows this, and the words are being spoken from Psalm 118, and here he is on a donkey. Could it be any more clear? But may I say... In Luke's gospel, there's a, there's a touch of, of, of color, so to speak, information that the other gospel writers don't capture, and I, I'm always riveted by it. In, some, in sorry, Luke 19, uh, Luke describes that moment when Jesus, in the midst of all the palm branch waving and singing of Psalm 118, um, at that moment, he begins the descent of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley. The, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, is over here on on the, uh, the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley separating the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And as he begins the descent uh, from the Mount of Olives, heading over to cross the, the brook and then up the other side, Jesus begins to weep. One of the two times in the gospel accounts, Jesus weeps. John 11, the tomb of Lazarus, and Luke 19. Jesus begins to weep. Why? Well, Luke tells you. He tells you exactly what's on his mind. Jesus saw the city, saw the crowds, and he began to weep. And he said, if only you'd known what today was, if only you knew, and you don't. If only you knew the day of your your visitation, if only you knew that this was the day that the prophet spoke of, that the king would arrive. It's today, prophet Daniel, we spoke of that when we preached through Daniel, looking ahead to that day, a day of redemption. Again, this is the day the Lord has made. It's the day of redemption. It's not just any day. I know we sing that song sometimes. You learned it at summer camp. This is the day the Lord has made. You can sing it by application without feeling any guilt before God. Uh, no sin was done here. But, but at the same time, in its immediate context, it wasn't talking about every day you wake up and irritate those around you by singing it. Uh, all the non-morning people around you saying, stop that. It's still quiet time. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Uh-oh, what day is it? It's the day of redemption. It's this day. That's, that's the context of Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made, a day of redemption. The Savior has come, and Jesus weeps and says, you don't even know what day it is. If only you knew. If only my people know. John 1, 12, of course, he came to his own. His own received him not. His own people didn't get it. And I can just imagine Jesus as he rides that donkey down. There are the, the, the shouts of people, shouts, shouts of praises, knowing before long another crowd will say, that week, crucify. But on that day, which I like to describe as 75 degrees, uh, blue wispy clouds, gentle breezes blowing, I make all that up, mainly because we don't, it's not in the Northwest, it's in the Middle East. So it could have been that. But it's a beautiful day. It's the day the Lord has made. And Jesus looking around, seeing children running around, knowing, honey, in your life, with you in your lifetime, the Romans are coming and they're going to plow your city. Many of you will die. It'll be an awful day. This is all coming because you don't recognize the time of your visitation. The king is here and you don't even know. So the, the, the heart of Christ it breaks 
as Luke describes it in Luke 19. But the king, the presentation of the king, oh, they, know, they don't understand entirely what it is they speak out. Of course, to use Palm Sunday language, you know, Hosanna, save now. Save now. That's the idea behind those words. Uh, Hosanna, save us now, O oh God. It's a prayer. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Hallel, uh, hallelujah, Hallel, praise, Yah, part of the name Yahweh for God. So hallelujah, praise God is what those terms mean. Save us now, hallelujah, praise God. Hosanna, save us now. Now, the Hallel, as I mentioned here in front of you, Psalms 113, 118, were, were well known, memorized. That's what pilgrims sang on the way up to Jerusalem for festival. That was their songbook. So it was normal for that crowd, the Jewish crowd, to have those memorized, just like you know other songs, and they're walking along, they're coming to Jerusalem. We read here a moment ago, some of the crowd has come out from Jerusalem to see this guy who reputedly can raise people from the dead. But others of them are just pilgrims on the way up to Jerusalem for Passover, and they're singing what they always sang, the Hallel. And can you imagine the moment as they come to Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, riding among them, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The king is being presented. Now, there's a bridge that happens, verses 19, and what follows, the Pharisees say to one another as we move to that second section, the mystery of the atonement. Some Greeks, some Greeks show up. Verses 20, 21, 22. And we, right in the midst of this very Jewish event, some non-Jewish people are identified. Now, I, it, it should cause you as a reader of the Gospels to say Why? John, by his admission at the end of chapter 20, he could have filled books, you know, more books than the world could contain if you just kept writing all the events of Jesus. So he's selective. He didn't tell everything. So why did he include the, this little bit of information? Here in a Jewish crowd, some non-Jewish people show up with this very strange request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. We wish to see him. And so one takes to the other and, and off they go. And that's the moment where Jesus says, the hour has come. What do you make of this? Very, very interesting. Well, I look at this, and I think as Jesus is drawing near to his appointment, is uh, there in your sermon notes, he draws near to his appointment with the cross. I don't think it's by accident that Greeks, non-Jewish peoples, show up. The world, the world has gone after him. And I find this, in a sense, uh, perhaps John has it in mind, a nod to the purpose of the gospel, not only for the Jewish crowd, but for those at the ends of the earth. The non-Jewish crowd are welcome as well. In the family of God, just as the Great Commission, the Abrahamic Covenant, all point in this direction. The blessing of Abraham going to all the ethnic groups of the world. So here, as Jesus says, the hour has come, not only are Jewish people with him, but representatives of other ethnic groups are now in the crowd as well. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I remember that phrase because... When I came to Sunset Bible Church 21 years ago, the pulpit we had at the time had a little plaque drilled, uh, screwed into it that said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, Earl, I don't know who put that there. Did you do that? Probably came with, I don't know, might have come with whoever gave us that big, uncomfortable desk. But, but that part I remember looking at as I came here 21 years ago, we wish to see Jesus. Whoever did that, screwed it into the pulpit, had a point. From this pulpit, please preach Christ. Could you do that? Could you do that? I don't know where that uh, plaque went. We got a different pulpit, probably this one. 
uh, some years ago, but um, I remember that phrase. I always think of it when I read this text, we wish to see Jesus. And that was a charge given to those who preached here uh, at some point along the way. Someone did that. I appreciate it. Well, Greeks seeking Jesus. Now, I look at verse 23. We've seen that the day has come, and now Jesus says the hour has come. This is significant in the Gospel of John because, giving you some other texts here, earlier on in the story, Jesus says, or John says about Jesus, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And now you come to this moment, he says, the hour has come. That's repeated in John 13, verse 1. Jesus knowing his hour had come. So there's an appointment, Okay? exactly the right time. You think of Galatians 4 here. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the hour, the day, it's time. I find that so interesting. Now, verse 27, if you notice, Jesus is talking about the atonement. What's going to happen here? He's he's thinking about the purpose for which he has come. Grain of wheat falling into the ground, dying, verse 24, reason to die and be buried. He said, it'll bring more life this way. That's the analogy looking at himself. Then he says in 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Should I pray that? Should I pray for the magic carpet ride away from, the, from, from Calvary? Should I pray this? Now, of course, this foreshadows the agony with which Christ would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not an easy thing to look, to look at that, that cup of the wrath of God. I think that's what Jesus was captured by in the Garden of Gethsemane, there in the dark as he wept and said, Oh, Father, this is going to hurt physically, but it's not all about that. No, the, the white-hot wrath, cup of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on sin, and it will be on my shoulders as though sin of the world was placed on Christ. Your sin, by the way, mine, went there to the cross with Jesus. Jesus sees it. And there in Gethsemane, agonizes about it. Here, he says, should I ask to be saved from this? No, this is the reason I came. This is the reason I came. Wow, Jesus understands his purpose. Father, he says, glorify your name. And heaven responds, I have, and I'll do it again. Wow. Glory of God through Christ in all of his works, and now in this, what we call the book of glory, as we head into it in chapter 13, the Son of God going to the cross. The mystery of the atonement, I gave you a reference here, not from other texts, but from the song, uh, And Can It Be, Charles Wesley, a forgotten, I think, a long forgotten verse of that song. I don't think it makes the cut in most modern hymnals. If you have a hymnal at home, you can check it out. Tis mystery all, Wesley wrote, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths, to measure the depths of love. In vain, tries to measure the depths of God's love. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, immense and free for, oh my God, it found out me, he says. Amazing love. Amazing love. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. How can it be? How can it be? The mystery of the atonement. Now, moving on, 37 to 43. The indictment of unbelief. In verse 37, though he had done so, although he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Isn't that interesting? 
Quote from Isaiah. This is chapter 53, verse 1. And then again, verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. Do you hear the punch of that? They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 6, uh, 10. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So verse 37, they did not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe. And Isaiah, again in verse 40, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Christ, and spoke of him. Isaiah chapter 6, as we saw it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Wow. So I I want to remind us of a couple of things here from verses 37 and 39. Listen carefully. It takes more than facts, facts for a person to be born again. Do you hear this? Many people know the facts of Jesus, maybe raised in churches or they heard the facts. They can, I remember one guy I chatted with, he could name the 12 disciples faster than you. He could name the books of the Bible forward and backward as he cut my hair. He threw out all kinds of riddles by which he remembered tons of facts about the Bible, didn't believe a word of it. So it isn't facts alone that save your soul. No, it is trusting Christ from the heart. There's a change of heart. So I remind us here, uh, you know, I'm a fan of apologetics, that, that craft of, of explaining and defending the Christian faith and the existence of God. I'm a huge fan. We've done apologetics conferences here, but you will never get someone into the kingdom of God by apologetics alone. See, you can win the battle, the argument, and someone remains unregenerated. See, there's a work of God that must happen in that person's heart. Not just them saying, well, that was a good argument, but have they bowed the knee of the heart before the living God? May I say, have you? Bow the knee of your heart before the living God and say, I trust Christ as my savior from sin. Many on the final day of judgment will stand before the throne of God, Revelation 20, able to give facts about God. I can quote the books of the Bible. I can, I can. The names of the apostles, I can say them backwards and forwards. I can name quote Bible verses and be sent straight to hell because they never bowed the knee of their heart in humility before God, saying, I'm trusting Christ, Christ alone as my Savior from sin. Please don't let that be you. People who sit in chairs and pews of good churches, who hear and hear and know details, have never trusted Christ as their Savior. Now, you'll notice in verse 36, that's exactly what Jesus calls people to do. A summary of the gospel invitation. In my section, the darkness closes in. Jesus is talking about light and darkness. The light is with you, he says in 35. In 36, he says, well, you have the light. Believe in the light. And I mentioned there, if you like these kinds of grammatical details, second person plural imperative. It's a command form, if you like, in plural. It's not Jesus talking to one person. It's speaking to a crowd. It's Christ calling out at this moment. Listen, people, believe in the gospel. Believe the light of the world is among you, he would say. There he was. Believe, it's a command. To refuse to do it is not simply to decline a party invitation. It's to say no to the voice of God. He says, believe. So if you don't, say, well, I just chose to decline. You didn't just choose to decline. To say no is an act of disobedience to God. Gross disobedience to God. High consequence. No, believe, he says. Believe in the light you may become sons of light. Now, I give you some other details here as the darkness closes in. I'm picturing this as a moment in the Gospel of John where like, it's like there's a dimmer switch, a theological dimmer switch, and somebody is slowly sliding it down 
What do I mean by that? John, of course, at the very beginning, John chapter 1, he uses the analogy of light and dark begins right at the beginning. Speaking of John the Baptist, he was not the light. came to bear witness of the light, the one that was the true light. Coming into the world would bring light to everyone. And all the way through John's gospel, he uses light and darkness. Christ at one point saying, I'm the light of the world. The one who walks, uh, oh boy, I'm the light of the world. He who, wow, follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is that correct? It's my version, so I think it is. It's close. It's very close. I'll look at it later and go, come on, you missed three words. No, I'm the light of the world, he would say. So John, now watch this. So interesting. In the first 12 chapters, he uses that analogy 24 times. The last one is this, 26. Uh, Yep, 46. This is the last reference in the Gospel of John to light like that. I have come into the world as light, Well, the flicker is starting to get dimmer as we move into the next chapters. In fact, John, John's telling the story. He uses symbolism a lot. John 13, 30, our text for Friday night, part of it, as Judas receives that little morsel at the Last Supper, he's heading out to betray Jesus. He takes the morsel of bread and goes, and John says, and it was night. Christ is betrayed at night, arrested at night, tried illegally at night crucified on the cross, and as he is crucified on the cross, what happens? God turns the lights down. Matthew's gospel tells us that darkness, as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness covered the land until the ninth hour. Jesus raised from the dead when? Dawn on the third day. Huh? And what happens? A new day is, has begun. So I, I, John, I think he's doing it on purpose. Light, light, light. Stop the light. Darkness, it's the hour of darkness. Jesus would say that at some point in the gospel. This is your hour and the hour of darkness, the power of darkness. The darkness takes over. The light of the world dies till the dawn on the third day of the week and the sun rises again. I use it both ways. How cool is that? Thank you, John. The darkness closes in. John uses light and darkness all the time. You go to his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he does the same thing, especially 1st John. He does the same thing, light and darkness. Do you see it? And so John helps us here. Now, if you go to that part called responding to God's word, the kids are gathering, kids are gathering. They're going to letting them in in about two minutes. I'm gonna, <laughs> I don't want to be here. If that, I mean, if they come rushing in. Responding to God's word, I'm going to give you two things. This text shines a spotlight on the mission of the church. Even as Christ approached the end of his life, he would call out, believe. Believe in the light, and that call is still the call of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to change the political structure, the geographical boundaries, install a new economic system, or just educate people better. None of those will save anyone's immortal souls. He came to die on the cross for our sin, to be our sin bearer, so that you and I could be called children of God. So he knew why he came. He did. And that message is still the message of the church today. All kinds of other things we do and we help with and we care for and we pray about, yes, indeed, but the central message never changes. That calling out in the darkness, the light of the world, look to Christ, trust him as your savior. And then finally, a reminder to us for whom the light seems to be pretty dark today. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all of our sin. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will, you will. Be of good courage. 
He says, I have overcome the world. Is it dark? Oh, yes, at times very dark. I'm, I'm, my mind is, is occupied today, these weeks, with the millions of people on the other side of the world for whom this will be a very different Holy Week. You imagine celebrating Easter in a bunker. Some will. Some will. Bombs flying overhead, families separated, families grieving. Jesus. Jesus. There will be many. I've checked in with a couple of my contacts from European Leadership Forum. Their churches are swamped with refugees. Bunks everywhere, mattresses, Poland, Romania, people you don't know. They went and picked up carloads of people, pulled up in a car and said, I can take eight. Eight, get in the car, and off they go. Don't know them from anybody. Come to my house, and people go. What a different holiday. Jesus, the light of the world, the glory of Christ in submission and obedience. Well, you think about those things. Read the other texts. Take them to your community groups. Dozens and dozens of you will meet this week to talk. Father, thank you so much for a good morning. We remember Jesus today, uh, writing in on that amazing day that we call Palm Sundays, heartbreaking and yet rejoicing. The crowds of people, oh yes, some who believed, but many who didn't get it. Oh, Father, in that crowd, we want to be among those who do stand in faith, knowing Christ is our Savior from sin, the one who did come to save us. So, Father, I pray for all of us here in our Sunset family, others who will join us uh, later on listening or watching from other places. Our Father, that in this, this crowd there'd be some who would maybe even hear today for the first time, yes, I see it and I understand it and I believe it, and respond in faith to the gospel invitation. Maybe even do that here, Father, that some would cross that line of faith from saying, I, hear, I know the details, but I want to trust Christ and make him my own. Father, do that work in us. Only you can. We trust you to do it. Draw men and women to yourself. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.